0: This is Latin Pulse, a weekly analysis of news and public affairs in Latin America, brought to you through the cooperation of the School of Communications at Webster University, the Global University, headquartered in St. Louis, Missouri, and Link TV. And now, here's host Rick Rockwell. Bienvenidos and welcome to Latin Pulse. This week, important trade and financial issues will analyze the Trans-Pacific Partnership and dive into the debt crisis in Puerto Rico, too. But first, Sierra Hancock has our weekly review of news from around Latin America.
1: Argentina and the United Kingdom traded angry words this week at a diplomatic conference for countries in the Western Hemisphere and Europe. Argentina and the UK had a diplomatic clash over ownership of a group of islands in the South Atlantic. The British call the islands the Falklands and the Argentines call them the Malvinas. Argentine Foreign Minister Hector Timmerman repeated his country's claims at the conference.
0: Argentina sends recriminations against the views of Prime Minister David Cameron concerning the Malvinas. The whole world knows Argentina's pain in this case. We have the right to say the islands are part of our integrated homeland. They're part of our country.
1: Argentina and the UK fought a war over the islands in the 1980s with the British winning. The British first landed on the islands in 1690 and have maintained a continuous military presence there for 182 years, except during the Argentine occupation during the war. British Prime Minister Cameron said he viewed Argentina's official statement at the conference as a threat. He said the island's 3,000 residents had held a vote two years ago and determined they wanted to stay a British overseas territory. The dust-up between Argentina and the U.K. came at a conference of the Community of Latin American and Caribbean States and the European Union, a meeting of about 60 countries this week in Belgium. Panama launched yet another investigation this week into the actions of its former president, Ricardo Martinelli. This time, the Panamanian Supreme Court ordered a probe into whether Martinelli had ordered illegal wiretaps of his political opponents. Prosecutors say Martinelli could have ordered illegal spying on at least 150 people, high-ranking officials in the various opposition parties, and powerful members of the business community too. Last week, a Panamanian court issued arrest orders for Martinelli's vice president on corruption charges. Another president in Supreme Court tangling over corruption allegations. But this time it is President Otto Perez Molina in Guatemala feeling the heat. This week, Guatemala's Supreme Court asked the country's Congress to consider stripping Perez Molina of his immunity from prosecution. Last month, Guatemala's vice president resigned due to corruption charges. The Supreme Court says the president may also be tied to the same scandal, which involves a complex kickback scheme connected to customs charges. Protesters in Guatemala have held a series of rallies during the past two months calling for the president to resign. His term in office is over in January. A man in Brazil showed this week there's nothing better for the brain than a little music even during brain surgery surgeons could not completely put the man under because they needed him to demonstrate that he could still move during the surgery to make sure they weren't hitting any ultra sensitive areas of his brain so the man decided to play his guitar and serenade the surgery team with his own compositions and standard favorites including yesterday by the beatles Doctors say they removed 90% of a tumor that had been growing in the man's brain. So far, they report he's recovering and they hope he will be back to normal soon. For Latin Pulse, I'm Sierra Hancock.
0: Thanks, Sierra. Today, as we record this program, the U.S. House of Representatives is voting on fast track trade authority for President Barack Obama. For most folks, that may sound like an arcane bit of politics, but experts say it could affect millions of jobs, not just in the U.S., but in major countries in Latin America, and indeed throughout the Pacific Rim. Last month, over the objections of many Democrats, the U.S. Senate passed a bill giving Obama that authority, and today the House takes up the controversial measure which gives the president special powers when it comes to negotiating trade treaties. If the House passes this bill, it will be one of the first steps toward approving a trade pact called the Trans-Pacific Partnership, or the TPP. The trade pact would link a dozen countries along the Pacific Rim, including the United States, Canada, Mexico, Peru, and Chile. But critics say it will mean exporting jobs to lower-wage countries in the pact, including those Latin American countries, along with Malaysia and Vietnam, too. Critics have also assailed the secretive nature of these trade negotiations. One of those critics is Rob Scott of the Economic Policy Institute. We asked him to outline his objections to the trade deal. He joined us from the Institute's offices in Washington, D.C., via Skype.
2: This deal, uh, I think like many of the others that the U.S. has negotiated over the past 20 years, uh, really, I think, pits the interests of working people in the United States and in other countries against those of, of large corporations because uh, the nature of the deal is such that uh, um, corporate interests have had a very heavy hand in uh, designing this deal and writing the actual terms uh, of, the, of the agreement and it's going to have a fundamental effect on, uh, the, on the structure of the economy in both the developed and developing world uh, going forward, if it is allowed to uh, take place.
0: You've made note recently that the president has come out and and, and tried to fight against that particular image that this is bad for working families. And that's what his fellow Democrats are saying and why they're trying to block his trade authority to negotiate this particular pact. What are the specifics that you can tell us about how you see this as unfair for the middle class?
2: Well, I think We have to look at that first from the perspective of the United States, and then also from those uh, workers in other countries. Uh, In the United States, uh, what we have experienced with trade deals like this is uh, a tremendous explosion of outsourcing of production. These deals have made uh, it safe and have encouraged firms to invest abroad, Uh, so they move production to foreign countries, uh, first with uh, going to Mexico after NAFTA. Uh, and uh, um, after we brought China into the World Trade Organization in 2001, uh, we had huge explosion in outsourcing, uh, and most recently uh, with Korea, uh, the, the specifically that President Obama negotiated the Korea deal, uh, promised that we would get a $12 billion increase in exports and that would create 70,000 jobs. What we got instead was a $1 billion increase in exports and about a $13 billion increase in imports. Exports support domestic employment. Imports displace jobs. So when uh, imports grow faster, we have job losses. And that's exactly what's happened after all of these deals that I've I've mentioned. Uh, We lost uh, about uh, 75,000 jobs due to growing trade deficits to Korea. We lost uh, almost 700,000 jobs due to growing trade deficits with Mexico alone, and China is a big problem. We've lost over 3.2 million jobs due to growing trade deficits with China. But for U.S. workers, the job cost is really just the tip of the iceberg. It's really an indicator for the much broader effects of trade and globalization on the wages of working Americans. And what these deals do uh, is drive a wedge between the wages of production workers, essentially everybody in the economy who does not have a college degree, uh, and uh, workers with t- college degrees and above, and of course those in the very top income classes. Um, so what we've seen is tremendous growth in incomes of college-educated workers, and especially those in the top uh one and five and ten percent of the economy, and essentially flat wages for everything else. And my colleague Josh Bivens has estimated that the growth in uh, trade with low-wage countries has reduced wages of uh, working Americans, production workers without a college degree, by up to $1,800 a year. Um, That was in 2011, and those are annual wage losses. It's it's a huge uh, cost. Uh, And and the number of workers uh, affected here is really quite astounding. Uh, Non-college educated workers make up about 65 to 70 percent of the labor force or Over 100 million workers. So most workers are suffering major losses as a result of these deals. And they see it in their pay packets packets every week.
0: You mentioned the North American Free Trade Agreement, NAFTA. And and this was a trade agreement that really was sparked by the Mexican government at the time and sold to the U.S. And various U.S. presidents got behind that particular trade pack we've debated on this program whether nafta has really paid off in the way that it was expected 20 years later and you've just mentioned one of the effects the the effect on wages in the united states but what what's the advantage to getting involved in this trade pack for mexico for peru for chile for the latin american countries
2: well I'm not sure there are advantages. For example, in the case of Mexico, uh, the the NAFTA agreement was supposed to close the gap between wages in Mexico and the United States, uh, and yet in the last 20 years, um, the the gap uh, between average wages here and in Mexico has actually increased. So workers in Mexico have fallen farther behind as uh, a result of the NAFTA agreement. I think um, for uh, workers throughout uh, Latin America, in uh, uh, Peru and, and Mexico and Chile uh, in particular, there are a number of other features of this agreement that are going to be of, of major concern. One of those uh, is the fact uh, that uh, the agreement is going to result in a major tightening of copyrights. Uh, This is going to rise uh, the uh, the price of uh, of, uh, prescription drugs, and uh, it's going to extend the patent life on uh, software and other electronics and other kinds of intellectual property. What this is going to do is uh, two things. It's going to make uh, drugs less uh, available uh, to, to people in, uh, around the world, uh, and it's going to tremendously increase the cost and leave less money uh, left over for other kinds of purchases. So it's going to directly threaten both uh, quality of life and living standards, I, I think, around the world. So uh, the patent protections, which have been inserted at the, at the behest of companies like uh, Dow and Intel, I think are a real threat to workers uh, in both the North and the South. Given what
0: you told us at the beginning of this particular interview, is it then that the Mexican government, Peruvian government, Chilean government really are looking out for corporate interests rather than their workers and trying to be part of this pact?
2: I'm afraid that that is the case. Um, my uh, uh, colleague uh, 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 Jeff Foe uh, a, is a real student of the politi- uh, political economy of NAFTA and he wrote a book about the history of that agreement in, uh, I think, 2007, which, called, which which was titled The Global Class War. And wh- he actually had a conversation at one point uh, just prior to uh, uh, the NAFTA, uh, uh, the, the completion of the, and approval of the NAFTA agreement with, um, uh, with a major political leader from Mexico, uh, who, who told him at the t- time, he, he argued to Jeff, he said, don't you understand this is an agreement that will benefit us. By us he meant uh, people in the educated uh, political elite uh, in both the U.S. and Mexico and Canada. I don't think he, had, uh, he was referring in any way to uh, working people in any of those countries. And that is the way it has worked out. It has been, uh, uh, it has been agreement that has helped. Uh, the wealthy Uh, and the political elite, I think, in in all three countries in the case of NAFTA. Where we are now is that we're debating what's known as uh, fast-track or trade promotion authority legislation. Uh, This would allow uh, the president to uh, present the agreement to Congress and have it approved on a simple up or down vote without amendment uh, if the agreement uh, is uh, completed. Uh, and, and the president has maintained that this is necessary to complete uh, these kinds of delicate to trade negotiations. Uh, this is, uh, in fact, the presidents have had this uh, fast-track authority Uh, since, I think, uh, uh, President Nixon in 1974. Now, we've negotiated lots of trade deals without it, but but since then, this has become the norm. Now, the the problem with that legislation is that uh, it will provide authority for any agreement to be brought forward in in the next six years. So it's not just authority to negotiate the Trans-Pacific Partnership it's going to apply to uh, a proposed agreement with Europe and any other agreement that any future president uh, would want to bring forward. Because this does provide this kind of negotiating authority to the next occupant of the White House, and we don't know who that person will be or what their views with uh, with respect to trade uh, will be. And there are a number of other concerns we haven't gotten to yet that uh, that we can that uh, have been raised in, in in that regard. So where we stand, where it stands now. The Senate has approved this uh, uh, measure called the uh, Trade Promotion Authority. Uh, they voted on it about a, a, a two weeks ago. So uh, it's not done yet. We're in the middle of the process, but we're getting very close to the end.
0: And given the conservative nature of the House, it's likely to pass.
2: Well, actually, that's not entirely certain. There are a number of uh, members of the House who are hesitant to give uh, President Obama authorities to negotiate anything. And uh, there are members who are vulnerable uh, to concerns about jobs and wages and their impacts in their districts. Um, And uh, uh, at at last count uh, that I've heard, there are as many as 50 or 60 Republicans who remain opposed. To giving the president trade promotion authority, uh, many of those are are people that come out of the Tea Party caucus, uh, uh, by the way. So uh, it's it's a strange coalition of opponents. You have the the, the uh, some uh, Republicans from the far right opposed to this uh, uh, legislation, and you have. The vast majority of the Democratic Party uh, uh, opposed. Uh, At this point, only 18 Democrats have announced that they favor uh, this legislation. Uh, They would need at least another 10 or 12 in order to uh, cobble together uh, enough votes to, to pass this legislation in the House.
0: Thank you so much. Rob Scott of the Economic Policy Institute. Joining us from the Institute's offices in Washington DC via Skype today on Latin Pulse. Thank you very much.
2: Thank you for having me.
0: The congressional vote will be coming later today, but too late for us to give you results until next week. Stay with us though. We'll be dipping into another issue facing the US Congress in Latin America, the debt crisis in Puerto Rico.
1: Democracy is synonymous with independence. Independence is synonymous with emancipation. Emancipation is synonymous with sovereignty. Sovereignty is synonymous with superiority. Superiority is synonymous with arrogance. Arrogance is synonymous with domination. And domination is synonymous with dictatorship. Dictatorship always finds its way. Amnesty International learn, indignate, act. Welcome back to Latin Pulse.
0: Puerto Rico, the U.S. territory in the Caribbean, is dealing with a major financial shortfall. The island owes creditors at least $72 billion and must come up with a solution by the end of this year or face the wrath of the international financial system. Some have compared Puerto Rico's financial situation to Greece And if that analogy is true, then the U.S. Congress plays the same role as the European Union in that other debt crisis. Some are calling for Congress to let Puerto Rico default on its debts. Others want Congress to come up with a different solution. So far, the island's governor, Alejandro Garcia Padilla, has slashed budgets and raised the sales tax. The island is also negotiating to restructure its debt. We asked Mauro Guillen, the director of the Lauder Institute of Management at the Wharton School of the University of Pennsylvania, to unravel Puerto Rico's debt crisis for us. Guillen is also the co-author of Global Turning Points, among other books. He joined us via Skype from Philadelphia.
3: Well, it is, uh, I think, a complicated situation, uh, probably not as dire as the one in Greece for a number of reasons that I'll explain briefly. But it is true that you know, the Puerto Rican economy has been declining for the last uh, 10 years or so. And uh, it is also true, undeniably, that uh, it shares a currency with a much bigger market, right, the, the U.S. dollar. So that's similar to the situation in Greece. Now, having said that, unemployment is not as high. And there's another big advantage that Puerto Rico has, which is that uh, Puerto Rico benefits from all of the social programs, meaning Social Security. Uh, you know, transfers for families, so all all of those things that Greece doesn't have at its disposal. Because if you remember, Europe hasn't put in place the kinds of, uh, you know, federal-level systems uh, that we've had here in the United States since the 1930s.
0: We see a high level of folks on support um, in, or what some people might call welfare in Puerto Rico, almost 40% of the population. How did the country dig itself into this particular development hole? Uh, There were tax breaks that kept companies interested in in doing business in Puerto Rico and the the economy is still largely built on pharmaceuticals, is it not?
3: Uh, Yes. So I think there are three distinct uh, reasons why Puerto Rico is in trouble. The first one you just mentioned, which is that for many years since the uh, late 1960s, uh, there was this uh, uh, special tax treatment on the part of the United States that would enable companies from the U.S. to invest in Puerto Rico and then essentially uh, pay no corporate taxes. And that essentially made making investments in Puerto Rico very attractive for American firms. Uh, now, as part of the uh, fiscal problems in the United States, uh, during the uh, 1990s, uh, there was this agreement to phase out those tax incentives, those tax breaks. And they finally you know, became history. Uh, a few years ago. Uh, now I should mention that Puerto Rico itself continues to have tax breaks, but the real advantage here for companies was the uh, the, the tax break uh, in the uh, uh, U.S. federal uh, corporate uh, you know uh, tax. Right. Um, so that's the first reason. The second reason is that the Puerto Ricans themselves have been making very very uh, bad decisions, uh, especially trying to compensate for the lack of investment in private jobs, right? Jobs in the private sector by hiring more public employees. And of course, as you can imagine, this has made the budget deficit bigger and bigger and bigger. And you cannot do that, right? You cannot try to use government jobs as a way to um, compensate for the lack of private investment, right? And then the third thing is that, unfortunately, there is a lot more competition in the world today than 20 years ago. Right, there are workers throughout Latin America, Central America, in Asia, uh, even in Africa these days, that are producing many things that Puerto Rico also produces, and so there's more global competition. And unless you keep on improving, unless you keep on raising your productivity, unless you keep on educating your labor force, you fall behind, and that's exactly what has happened to the island.
0: The last figures I saw said that about a quarter of the workforce in puerto rico were employed by the government by the government sector and some people actually do see government as needing to step into this situation but not the puerto rican government the the u.s federal government is there a way that congress could come in and and help puerto rico
3: well I mean, this is the uh, of course the the big uh, the big issue right so if puerto rico um, finds itself in a situation in which it cannot continue service servicing its debt right then, well, Puerto Rico, unlike Greece, is not an independent country, right? Puerto Rico happens to be a U.S. territory. So it would be very, very, uh, you know, problematic for the U.S. government, federal government, not to intervene, right? Um, so uh, but this creates a problem also, which means that the Puerto Ricans know that they can continue to uh, avoid making the adjustments because they know that there is a uh, a bailout, Right. Uh, that uh, has to happen if they, uh, in the end, cannot uh, continue paying off their debts. Uh, so it's a two-way street, right? On the one hand, it's a nice guarantee. It's a nice thing for them to have. But on the other, it is something that tends to slow down the reforms. It tends to uh, kind of um, you know, signal that, well, they don't need to work as hard because you know, the U.S., which is a much bigger country, of course, uh, in the end, will have to bail them out.
0: Do you expect the U.S. Congress to intervene by the end of the year? And is there a deadline for them to at least start to deal with this debt in a strong way before the end of 2015?
3: Yeah, if they don't, if they don't do that, uh, it's going to, I think, uh, you know, create a big problem. Uh, you know, Puerto Rico has three and a half million people. It is a U.S. territory, so there will be, I'm sure, a lot of uh, you know negotiations. Uh, but uh, they will need to intervene. Uh, The other part of this, of course, is that the executive branch, uh, so the Obama administration itself, could uh, also take some steps to try to alleviate uh, the burden, right? Uh, But in general, I think, uh, you know, whether we're talking about Congress or about the Obama administration, they have no choice. I mean, they cannot let Puerto Rico fall off the cliff, right? Uh, It's just uh, unthinkable, Uh, because once again... The Europeans can do that with Greece if if they choose to do that, right? I mean, there would be tremendous consequences, but they could just say, hey, sorry, Greece, but you're not uh, doing what we're telling you that you should do. So we're going to let you go, right? But that's impossible in the case of Puerto Rico because it is a U.S. territory.
0: When we've seen other U.S. territories get in trouble, I'm thinking specifically of the District of Columbia, uh, Congress set up a special control board to work with the mayor's office there in dealing with finances and and how the city would go through this. Uh, of course, DC lost a little bit of its autonomy. What some would say it doesn't have enough autonomy, but um, during that particular process, do you do you see a control board is in the future for Puerto Rico?
3: Oh, absolutely. I mean, I don't think the United States is going to make any concessions, uh, or it's going to. Uh, you know, um, rescue the island, uh, uh, the island's government uh, without conditions and without a monitoring mechanism in place. It could be similar to the one that was established in the case of uh, the District of Columbia or it could be a different one, Uh, but it will have to happen. Uh, By the way, there is one difference between, uh, you know, in the case of Puerto Rico, as you know, they have a representative in Congress that has voice but no vote, right? It's called the Resident Commissioner. Um, so in all of these negotiations, the Resident Commissioner will have to play a very important role. Um, and uh, remember also that unlike uh, the District of Columbia, uh, Puerto Rico also has constituents in the United States, basically, especially in New York, right, and a little bit in Chicago. Uh, and there are Congress uh, members of Congress uh, representing those um, uh, those districts that happen to be Puerto Ricans, right? But they they, they live in the U.S. in, in on the mainland. Uh, so Puerto Rico has, you know, some political clout, and uh, their votes matter, uh, whether they are in uh, in Puerto Rico or they are in in, in one of the uh, fifty states. Um, so there will be some agreement that I totally agree with you. It will come at the expense of uh, the the the, uh, the government of the island uh, losing some autonomy and uh, being monitored more closely, so that some of the abuses of the past don't don't happen again.
0: As an economic expert, I'm wondering what your suggestions are for how Puerto Rico looks at this long range how it tries to adjust its economy to deal with not just the current financial problem but but looking forward how it could could stay away from these sorts of problems
3: uh, You know, I think the single most important thing is for the two main political forces over there to find some common ground. Uh, And the the, the issue is that, like in the United States, they are bitterly divided and they have very different proposals as to what to do. And the two parties, as you know, have very different historical origins. One is much more pro-business. The other one is much more pro-government intervention. And uh, so it's going to be hard. But I think that is the first thing that they have to do, which is to realize that the future of the island and of its population is at stake and that they need to leave, put aside all of the bickering and all of the, uh, you know, uh, political differences and try to find some common ground so that they then can then, uh, you know, negotiate with, uh, with the U.S.
0: Anything we haven't covered that you think is important for our audience to know?
3: The, the global economy of the 21st century is all about knowledge. It's all about uh, productivity. It's all about competitiveness. And no country that wants to give its population a reasonably high standard of living can escape that logic. So in order to improve your productivity, your competitiveness, in order to participate in this global knowledge economy, you need to make investments now, right? You need to make investments in infrastructure. You need to make investments in education. And also, you need to have a government that works and a government that is not wasteful. Fixing those problems in the case of Puerto Rico is not going to take a year or two. It's going to require five years, 10 years, and so they need to uh, lay the foundations now, get out of this problem that they have with the debt.
0: Thank you so much, Mauro Guillen, the co-author of Global Turning Points, and the director of the Lauder Institute at the Wharton School of the University of Pennsylvania, joining us from Pennsylvania, from Philadelphia, via Skype, our guest today on Latin Pulse. Thanks so much.
3: Thank you for having me.
0: Thanks for joining us for this edition of Latin Pulse. If you'd like to send us your suggestions or comments, you may leave us a message online via SoundCloud, or you may write us via email. You can find us at latinpulse at gmx.com. That's Latin Pulse, all one word, at gmx.com. If you're looking for earlier editions of Latin Pulse, we're available in various locations on the web, including iTunes, Facebook, and Flipboard. You can also find us in the Brazilian online game, Mini Mundos. To see the Latin Pulse archives of video programs on Latin America, you can check out Link TV's website, www.linktv, all one word, .org, and then slash Latin Pulse, also all one word. That's www.linktv.org slash Latin Pulse. Thanks for joining us this week on Latin Pulse for our entire team, production assistant Sierra Hancock and producer Jim Singer, I'm Rick Rockwell. Escúchanos otra vez. Gracias por su tiempo. Latin Pulse is produced at the School of Communications at Webster University, the global university, headquartered in St. Louis, Missouri, with music copyright support through Webster University and Link TV. This program is copyright 2015 Las Rocas Productions.